Well, good morning. Good to see all of you. I'm glad you're here. The Lord is glad you're here. If you would grab your Bible, turn to Ephesians chapter 2. We'll be reading verses 17 through 22. This will be our text for the lesson this morning as we continue to work our way through the book of Ephesians. As we talk about basic Christianity, the basic elements that make up the Christian faith. So we pick up the reading in Ephesians 2 and verse 17. Hear now the word of the true and living God. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens uh, with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Let us pray. Eternal God who exists forever as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. As we turn our attention to what you have done on our behalf through Christ, we pray we would seek to allow you to continue to do your work in each one of us individually and in the church collectively. We pray this through Christ our Lord. Amen. As I said last week, it's difficult to split up and divide into two parts this section of Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22, because it makes up a single unit, a single argument that Paul is making here. And as we saw last week, uh, there is no special privilege, nor is entrance granted into the kingdom because of some genetic or biological feature, uh, hence the discussion here about Jews and Gentiles and the dividing wall being broken down. And, and so what we see is that Jesus and, and Christ alone is the answer to the animosity that exists in the world between uh, different uh, ethnicities and factions and people groups, and that the church is to be the single place on this planet where Jew and Gentile, slave and free, black and white, educated and illiterate, Democrat and Republican, the haves and the have-nots, American capitalists and Chinese communists are all united in one body. We know historically that unfortunately... That lofty vision has not always been attained. But you do not determine the truth or the value of the Christian faith based on its abuse in the past. And in fact, what we do is we champion the ideal, even today. And that's what Paul champions here in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 and following. A church which is diverse and yet is united. 
united around the person and work of Christ, the continued work of the Father by the Spirit within each one of us individually and among the church collectively. And so in verse 17, Paul continues to build on what he has just said about through the cross, Christ has killed that hostility, that animosity that existed between Jews and Gentiles. Christ kills it through the cross. Through his death, that hostility dies. And so verse 17, and, continues the thought, he, that is Christ, came and preached peace to you who were far off, that would be the Gentiles, and peace to those of you who were near, and that is his way of talking about the Jewish people. He came and preached peace, and this seems to be a, either, if not a direct quotation, at least an allusion to Isaiah 57. And just uh, briefly, I want to turn your attention there, Isaiah 57, specifically verse 19. But as I've said before, and I'll continue to say, that whenever there is a quotation or an allusion, an echo to an Old Testament text, in all likelihood, the New Testament author has in mind the extended context. And it's very interesting that as you just, at a glance, look at Isaiah 57, verse 14 is going to talk about build up, build up. And that idea of building, guess what? It shows up again in Ephesians 2, how we are being built together. He talks about the iniquity that exists, that God has seen the ways of the people in their backsliding, in their way of heart, and yet he's going to heal them. And he does this, verse 19, by saying to them, Peace, peace to the far and to the near, says Yahweh, and I will heal them. And again, this, this seems to be what Paul has in mind in Ephesians 2 and verse 17. But it needs to be made clear that this peace is only for those who come to Christ, who seek to have Him deal with their sin problem. All the, the sin that's talked about in chapter 2 of Ephesians, back in one, uh, verses 1, 2, and 3, also in verses 12, 11 and 12, you have to come to God through Christ. Otherwise, verse 21 of Isaiah 57 says, there is no peace for the wicked. So what will it be? Peace or no peace? And so as we come back to Ephesians 2 and verse 17, Christ, he preached this peace. There's discussion about when exactly does, what, does Paul have in mind like the, the life and ministry of Christ? Does he have just the crucifixion involved? Does he have the ascension and the saying of the Holy Spirit? Uh, so, you know, in your own personal study, you may run across that. But one writer put it this way, regardless of what, one, of what view one may take, the important point is that in the Christ event, his life, death, resurrection, and exaltation, peace was achieved and access to God was made possible. And again, it's made possible for the Gentiles who were far off. We talked about that, verses 11 and 12. They didn't have the covenants and the, the, the forefathers of the faith and, and, and all of those things. The Jews, they did have that, and that's why they are those who are near. And yet, even in spite of their nearness, there's the recognition, and, and Paul's going to lean into the temple language in a moment, there was the understanding that while they had the temple 
only the high priest could go into the most holy place, and only priests could go into the holy place, and, and then there was a court around that, and not everyone had immediate access to God. But what Christ has done, well, it's, it's illustrated in what happens when he dies on the cross. In the temple, we are told that the, the temple curtain, a, a, a curtain which was four fingers thick, that curtain was torn in two from top to bottom, symbolizing now that there was access to God and that a way had been made that all people could have entrance and access to God. And so Paul here is emphasizing uh, in, in a rather pointed way. You know, typically, I mean, chronologically, we think about how the gospel went to the Jewish people first and then to the Gentiles, and that's a, a statement Paul makes elsewhere. But here he starts with the Gentiles first to emphasize for them that you are not excluded. The gospel is for all. And so Christ has preached this peace to those who are far off and those who are near. It's very interesting, this message of peace is preached, it's accomplished by Christ. We need to keep in mind here, lest we get it twisted in our minds, that the Christ of Scripture is certainly the one who brought peace, but he's also the one who talked about hell and the reality of hell more than any other New Testament writer. Overwhelmingly, he warned people about the reality of not following him, of not putting your faith, your trust in him, that there is a, a very real danger of eternity away from God. Flee from that wrath and find the peace that only He can provide. That's the good news, but again, it comes along with the bad news. The one who accomplishes the good news is also the one who told us the bad news. That God does punish even eternally sin. And so he, he preaches this peace, and because now there is peace, peace certainly among people, but especially that, that uh, vertical peace that exists between people and God, that's exemplified here in verse 18. For through him, that is through Christ, we both, Paul includes himself, he's a Jewish man, and he says, look, we both, Jews and Gentiles, people from all uh, nations and ethnicities and people groups and languages, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Access, a very interesting word, has to do with uh, the, the, the right and the privilege and the opportunity to speak with someone. And so there is a sense in which, uh, in view, is our prayer lives. That we can speak to and talk to, because that's what prayer is, is, is just talking with God. We can speak to and commune with God the Father. It's through Christ. It's in one spirit. I want you to see here the Trinitarian nature of the Christian faith. You see God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit are all mentioned in this one verse. And indeed, it is because of the work accomplished by the triune God that we have this access to God the Father through Christ and in one spirit. The whole Godhead is presented here as the means whereby we have this access to God. It's a beautiful that we can now speak to God and address Him as our Father. 
it's true that, unfortunately, there are times when human fathers are weak, are ineffective, are absent, they're bad. But that distortion should not inform the clear teaching of Scripture concerning God as a good father, because he is. He's a good father who delights in hearing from his children. He is a good father all the way around. And it's this good father that we have access to. We can come to him at any time. Again, under the old system, access was very limited. And for the Gentile, it was outright denied. Access denied, right? But now, because of Christ, Jew and Gentile, well, access granted. We all have access to the one true and only God. So then, verse 19, or your translation may say, therefore, that's good too. In, in light of what Paul has been saying in the preceding verses, so then, you're no longer strangers and aliens. Strangers is a term we've already come across back in verse uh, 12, and that had to do with a, a foreigner, someone who uh, does not have uh, access or, or citizenship within the, the territory. Alien here, kind of a new term that's used by Paul here, but it has a similar connotation that you may live in a place, but you don't have the right of citizenship. Paul says that that's not your status anymore. You're not strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens. And again, Paul has in mind here specifically the, Jew, the, the Gentile people. And he's saying that's where you were, but now you are fellow citizens. You have citizenship. And all of the privileges that go along with that, all the benefits that go along with that citizenship as part of this new nation that God is building. So that's the first figure, by the way. Paul's going to use three figures in these verses to talk about the church. And the first figure is that of a nation. We are this new nation of, of citizens with the saints, may point to, say, like the Old Testament saints that have been the people of God. And now, you too, you, Gentile, you Gentiles who, who didn't have any of this, now you have this right to citizenship. You're part of this nation that God is building. He doesn't stop there. He goes even further and he talks about how you are members of the household of God. Household. Family. It's family language. It's, it's a, uh, an illustration, a figure that is used uh, repeatedly in the New Testament. I just want to give you a couple of places here. How about 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 15? Again, a common metaphor, a common figure that's used to describe the church. Paul writes to Timothy, he says, If I delay, he says, I'm writing to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, the family of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. That is, we, we support the truth. We champion the truth. We're not the, the, the ones who produce the truth. God gives us the truth. We merely uphold that and champion that. But again, there it is, the family of God. Paul uses, excuse me, Peter uses this figure as well 
in 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 17. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. There it is again, the family. It's all family language. And here is Paul, and he's talking about God. He has his family. And it is ethnically diverse. It consists of people from all nations who look to Christ and put their faith and their trust in Him. You're not guests. You're not visitors. You are permanent dwellers in the house of God. Permanent members of the family. That idea of members. You know, that, that, there's a desire, a drive within people to identify with someone or, or some group or some important cause. It's a very real drive. And I'll tell you where you see it, and, and it's really starting to kick up now, given the season. Why do you think people will paint their faces, paint their bodies, go stand out in frigid, freezing cold temperatures for hours on end in order to root for and cheer for, from the bleachers, their favorite team? It's that drive to, to be a part of something, to, be, to identify with some cause that identification makes a person feel important. Again, like they, well, like they belong. This text here communicates to the people of God, you do belong. You have a place where you fit, a cause that, that uh, uh, it, not, it, it doesn't just make you feel important, it is important. See, that's, that's what a lot of people get confused today about is that feeling of importance must make this thing important. When at the end of the day, all it is is, well, a game. But something that really is important, that has eternal significance, meaning not just for now, but for the there and the then as well. That's the church. And so we have this nation, this country, which is the new Israel of God, the new people of God, but also uh, the kingdom of God, but also this, this household, this family, this home. A place to, to truly belong as brother and sister, who together we call on one God as Father. We belong. And we are important to Him, important to one another. We're important to the ongoing work of the church. And all this should also shape our worship as we, we come together and we gather together as the family of God. We don't come merely as spectators to watch other people do stuff. But rather, we come and to participate in this family experience of uniting our voices together with one voice glorifying God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. That's, that's what we do when we gather together is together we address our Father in worship while also addressing one another and being addressed by one another. It's true we are singing to God in worship, but one thing Scripture affirms, and we'll see this when we get to chapter 15, we are singing to one another. And it's through our singing that we are exhorting and encouraging one another in the faith. This is, this is what it means to belong, to be a member of the household, the family of God. This kingdom, this family, 
Paul goes on to say that it's built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone. Briefly, the apostles and the prophets, the, the, Paul, for prophets, may have in mind also the Old Testament prophets, but in close proximity here to the apostles, uh, it seems he has especially in mind the New Testament apostles and prophets, and, and also given that he's going to talk about just in just a few verses, the revelation of this mystery that comes uh, through the uh, inspiration of the Holy Spirit moving men in order to communicate from God. seems he has, uh, again, this emphasis on the New Testament apostles and prophets, but I don't think it excludes the Old Testament prophets either. It has uh, in view there also their foundation that they helped to establish. But now we see here Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. And it's the cornerstone that the rest of the building is built upon. And it follows after the cornerstone. The whole edifice uh, here seems to rest on this one foundational cornerstone. And, and Christ, He is uh, big enough, strong enough to support all the weight of His whole church, the whole building here. And so, uh, Christ, He is the chief cornerstone, but we must not miss that uh, we are, well, Peter talks about how we are living stones that are being built into this structure as well. Uh, the third figure that Paul is going to use here is that of temple. And we are living stones are being put together and fitted together to produce this beautiful temple where God dwells. You see, that's the, that's the, uh, the double nature of this, is that we dwell in the household of the family of God, and we are permanent dwellers there, but then also as the temple, the house of God, He dwells within us. Uh, and that's the, the beautiful figure here of the fullness that we experience in Christ. And so you have the, the whole structure in full of God. But again, don't lose sight of each one of us are vital and essential to the building. That we are uh, privileged to be a part of it. But we're also essential to its ongoing ministry and work. The building here is something that, that God does. It's related to verse 21 here, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. And even here, Paul starts to kind of mix metaphors. A, a temple that grows, right? I mean, a building, it doesn't really, it's not organic like, it, it, like a tree that grows and gets bigger. So again, very interesting just how he talks about this temple. But it makes sense when we understand that this temple is a living thing because it's made up of living stones. And again, each, each one of us is crucial to the ongoing ministry. In other words, ministry is not just for the elders or the ministers or the deacons. Ministry is for everyone. Uh, in the church... Uh, while it recognizes that there are uh, leaders, there's a, a given office for leaders uh, with elders, deacons, ministers, and that sort of thing, it recognizes a universal priesthood, that we are all priests of God, and therefore 
we are all involved in ministry at one level or another. This is especially vital when we think about the ongoing mission of the church to expand the boundaries, to bring in more and new uh, members of this temple. In other words, evangelism. Again, evangelism, outreach, it's not just what a few select people do. The whole church is involved in sharing the gospel and the good news with others. Uh, that's, that's what we have to keep in view here as, as Paul talks about this whole structure, uh, not to get lost in, in the, the, the structure as a, a single whole, because it is, but also to recognize the individual nature of this as well. I think both are in view here, uh, and, and we can't lose sight of one over the other. And so, in whom the whole structure being built together, again, this is God's work that he does. And, and the idea here of being built or, or joined together, being fitted together, that's, that's the idea. Uh, I am, I'll be the first to confess, I am not a handyman in any way, right? Just uh, building stuff, you know, and, and with my hands and, you know, that sort of stuff. I'm just small thumbs, as it were. But I appreciate when I see someone who is very skilled in that, and, and they'll They'll cut things and they'll make things in such a way that it just, you, you press together and it just, it just fits, right? And it just locks into place. And man, that's, that blows my mind. You, they specifically made it so that it just fits, it joins together just right. That's the idea of what God does with this church. That's what's communicated in being joined, being fitted together. It's not an accident that you are here. God has, as we've seen from chapter 1, God's, he, He's chosen His family, and he, he, he chooses exactly who He needs to fit together what it is He's building. Uh, and so it's, it's not an accident, it's intentional. There's a divine intention behind the, the building and the fitting. Also, you know, when, when someone builds something, they, they'll use different materials. They'll pull all the different materials together that they need in order to build the thing. And so it may be, you know, a, a specific kind of wood or maybe different kinds of woods, right? Different kinds of nails and screws and everything. And they pull all that together in order to build whatever it is they're building. That's what God does as well. He's got different materials, people from different nations and different languages and, and, and uh, different skills and abilities, different experiences, different, different lives lived. But all of it, God utilizes in order to Build together this church, his church, uh, not just here at Davis Park, but the world over as well. And he does that in order to grow this holy temple. And so in him, verse 22, in him you also are being built together. All throughout this, Paul has been emphasizing that it is God who does the building. God's the builder. Okay, um, that's, that's the force of uh, the way Paul writes this, is to emphasize that God builds, and guess what? That means that God gets all the glory for what he's building as well. And it is a glorious, holy temple. Uh, it is the place where God dwells, a dwelling place for God. You know, when, when someone uh, builds a house, you build it so that someone will live in it, right? Um, every now and again, I'll... I'll read to my boys some poetry, and one of the, the poems that I read them is a poem my grandma used to read to me. 
called uh, uh, The House with Nobody in It. Uh, and I invite you to, to go and, and track that down. It's a, a beautiful poem about this old house that's, that's run down. And, you know, the, 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 the uh, poet writes about how, you know, uh, the, the sound of, of children's feet running through the halls are no longer heard there. And how it's a sad thing to see a house with nobody in it. People build houses to dwell in, and guess what? God builds his house too. You know why? So he can live in it. He lives here with us. Indeed, it's, it's even a personal thing where God sends his Holy Spirit to dwell within each one of us. And he does. He lives with us. What a beautiful privilege. And yet at the same time, what a high and holy calling, right? A calling to live beyond ourselves. Not to live for ourselves, but to live for God. To live with the recognition that I have the Spirit of God living within me. To be holy in, in all of my conduct because of that. But also to recognize there are times when I don't live up to that calling. I do live for myself. I do give in to temptation. And I sin. And I ought to feel bad. And I ought to feel guilty because godly sorrow is a good thing because it leads to repentance. And in repentance, we turn to God. And He does not take His Holy Spirit from us, but instead by His Spirit, He strengthens us in the inner person so that we can live for Him another day and seek to do better today than I did yesterday and tomorrow better than I did today. And on it goes with this uh, continual pursuit for holiness as I seek to live as a dwelling place for God. See, that's the holy temple. That's the dwelling place for God. That's what we are. And, and so we certainly on, on the one hand, we think about how Peter talks about we are designed to offer sacrifices to God. That's our ministry that we do in serving uh, one another and serving others, loving our neighbor as we ought to and loving one another as we ought to and all those things. But then also in a very real sense, as Paul says elsewhere, we are living sacrifices. We ourselves are living sacrifices in the holy temple of God. All of these, again, they, they come to meet here as formerly God used to dwell in a physical building, at a physical location in Jerusalem. But now, now He dwells in this living temple in each one of us. And he does this, again, by the Spirit. That's how He dwells in His people, is by the Spirit. Once again, notice the Trinitarian nature of our faith. It is in Him, in Christ. You are being built together into a dwelling place for God, that seems to be God the Father, by the Spirit. And so again, we see God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit working together on behalf of this residence where God dwells. Also, you are being built together. Let me just say one more thing. The building that God does never stops. It won't stop until Christ comes back, okay? But it's ongoing. It's ever ongoing. It's continual, in other words. And, and that's the force uh, that Paul writes here with. God continually 
builds together his dwelling place. Again, to, to borrow uh, the illustration maybe of our building. You know, we, we have our building here. At one time, it was just, I, I hear about how just these three, uh, these three pillars, as it were, that, that uh, go up here and, and, and support the whole frame, right? It was just these three, but over time, they continued to build, and, and walls came up, and uh, classrooms were added. But even today, the work continues. You know, it wasn't too long ago we got new, new flooring put into our fellowship hall, and work gets done on, like, sitting in, in cool temperatures when it's hot outside, right? The AC needs maintenance, and, and there's ongoing maintenance that needs to take place in, in different areas and aspects. There's a sense in which the work continues here as this building needs upgrades and updates and things like that. To an even greater degree. God continues construction on His church, on His temple. And, and when, when new converts are made, they, they find a place to belong and, and to believe and, and to behave. But, but we ourselves also, you know, we, we, we don't just get dunked and then that's it. There's, God leaves us here to do the work He set before us. This, this harkens back to 2 and verse 10, about the, the good works that God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And, and then there's the ongoing work of our own sanctification as we are being changed from one degree of glory to another degree of glory in Christ by the Spirit. God's work continues on a day-by-day, even moment-by-moment basis. I hope you hear just the intimate nature of the work that God is doing. He is involved constantly, continually in His church, in His kingdom, in His family, in His temple. Let's commit this to prayer. O Lord, God of Israel, God of new Israel, there is no God like you in heaven, on earth, or under the earth. We thank you for being a God who loves us and calls us through the gospel and, and then continues to work on us until glory. Don't give up on us. You've given us access to the very throne room of grace we thank you for the high and holy privilege of being a kingdom, a family, and the place where you live, your house, your temple. Help us to live up to the, the high and holy calling that you have put before us. Help us to live for you every day. We pray all of this through Christ our Lord. Amen.